So if you would open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're going to continue in our study through the Word of God, through the uh, letters, the Corinthian letters, uh, which were written by Paul, inspired by God completely. The Bible is our authority. It's our only infallible rule of faith and practice. And as believers, we turn to the Word of God for direction, for truth, for inspiration. Um, we believe that this is God's true Word. And so we turn to it. <clears throat> and so as you're turning, um, many of you have heard the definition of insanity, which is to do the same thing over and over and over again and expect different results, right? Well, as, we, uh, as I was thinking about this, one recent example from me where I was acting insane or foolish, if you will, uh, my wife is far superior when it comes to cooking in our family, in every possible way. She's got Italian blood in her, so she is, she is a great cook. I think it comes naturally, plus she learned well from Wanda uh, over the years how, how to, to properly cook a meal for your family and how to do it well and, and all that. Uh, I, however, you know, being rather Scandinavian, my expertise is hitting things with large objects, you know, and that, that's just, that's just kind of, uh, I, I am not naturally skilled in the kitchen. It takes a lot of work for me, but throughout the week, there are times where I need to prepare the meal for the family, and uh, I, I do my absolute best. Usually, I fall back on just a couple things that I've learned how to do, like box macaroni and cheese and uh, chicken nuggets in the oven, you know, things like that. that that's usually my wheelhouse, so um, when she encourages me to, to maybe branch out and to start doing more things, uh, that can be a dangerous thing. And, you know, I, I might be alone in this among the men, but I have trouble following directions as a man. Believe it or not, it, it, it's, I might be the only one who has trouble following directions. And, and I think every time that I approach making a meal that somehow I can do something that has never been done before. That somehow I can magically prepare the taco meat in, in, in such a way that will just wow and shock and awe my, my wife that she'll, she'll just think, wow, this, I've never tasted meat like this before in my life. Nobody has ever thought to do it this way. And, and so that can tend to get me in a lot of trouble. I can overcook the meat. I can undercook the meat, especially when it comes to poultry and stuff like that, which can be a dangerous thing. Um, and so she's, uh, she's often on me about that. But I, I found when it comes to taco nights, I, I attempted to do tacos, which is a very simple thing. You just take a, what, a, a pound of beef or whatever, and you, you heat it up, and then you put in the taco seasoning. And it should be rather simple, but I tend to complicate it. And I, over and over again, I would not really follow the directions. I'd just take the seasoning, and I'd, I'd put it in the meat as it's heating up, and I'd think, that's about right. Well, maybe just a little bit more. Okay, you know, I'd, I'd eyeball it and try and do the, the proper amount of taco seasoning. Well, if, if you're a cook or you know how that goes, it, it, it has to be a, a real exact amount. And if you do more seasoning than you're supposed to, which I've done probably three times as much as you're supposed to one time, uh, it can be nasty, nasty stuff. If you under season it, then it's just really dry and not that great. So, as I was trying to prepare this meat for taco night, uh, I think maybe I'd nailed it on the first try, but that was like totally by the grace of God. It was uh, not because I'm good at it or anything. But after that, it was totally inconsistent. I would put way too much. I would put way too little. And every time my wife came home and, and as, as I'm you know, serving the meal, she would ask me, how much seasoning did you put in this? I said, oh, the allotted amount. <laughs> And she would say, did you measure it? No, but, you know, I've, I've done it before, and so I know general, the general amount. Yeah, yeah. And she said, because I can't taste the thing. It, there's, there's no spice to this. It's very just dull meat. Okay, and then so the next time, I overcorrect, and I put way too much to the point where it's inedible. We cannot eat it. And so she asked, how much did you put in this? And I said, the allotted amount. <laughs> she said, did you measure it? No, you know, and so time and again, I continued to make this same mistake. 
And she kept trying to speak truth into the, into the situation and wisdom and say, just follow the instructions. That's why they're there. They measure it so that you could find the, the general exact amount that you're supposed to put. And so I kept going on and on in this insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, not following the directions, expecting to get somehow get a different result, but it was the same result time and again. She, she, was, she could tell it was not very good. I was, I was creating not very good food uh, for the family. And so that was my example of insanity. And maybe you could share a story or two where you have continually done the same thing over and over again, expecting somehow it's going to turn out different, but really it just you continue to fall on your face. And as we look at the world today, we look at society, and if anybody's a, a student of history, we know that in no society where socialism has been tried has it ended up turning out good. And in most societies where they have tried socialism, it has then turned inevitably into capital, or, uh, excuse me, communism, which then has never been good for anybody except perhaps the person sitting on the top. But even they at some point uh, experienced the, the wrath of the people. But so we're seeing this happen today where people are ignoring what we have learned from history and what we have learned to do and, and not to do. And the fact that we want to continue trying to repeat this, try, you know, oh, let's try socialism again with a twist. It's insanity. Oh, you know, let's, let's try communism. That, that sounds like a good idea. Look through history. To repeat those mistakes would be absolute insanity. But then we look at our Christian lives, and a lot of us, we know that we love the Lord Jesus Christ with all of our heart. We know that he has redeemed us. We know that we are born again. We know that we have a hope in heaven. But yet when we look at everything in between from the point where we're born again to the time where we die and we go to the promised land in heaven, where the church has and God's people have experienced over and over again the results of our foolish behavior. And Israel they lived and acted foolishly time and again. God constantly called them a stiff-necked people because they did just that. They continued to do the wrong thing, and God would redeem them, and then they'd fall right back into doing the wrong thing, and then God's wrath would come upon them, and then he would redeem them. Over and over again, they continued to make these insane mistakes. They did not learn from their history. And you might look at the church and say, well, we're doing a heck of a lot better than Israel was. We're not stick-necked people. Yeah, you laugh for a good reason. Because we are exactly the same. We can tend to look back through history and think, oh, we would never do that. We are doing that. As a church, by and large, we are making the same mistakes that Israel had made. And I, I'm afraid, according to the pattern of Scripture, we're going to suffer the same calamities that Israel suffered in the past. But Paul, the Apostle Paul, being aware of this, even in his time 2,000 years ago when he was ministering and preaching to the people of Corinth, he was hopeful that they would learn from the history of those who have gone before us and that they would not make the same mistakes over and over again. And, you know, I, when it comes to cooking, I hope to impress to you men that it is good to follow the directions. This is a lesson that I had to learn the hard way and a lesson that I had to learn to listen to my wife when it comes to something she is far better than I am at. And when it comes to living our lives and to being the church, God knows a heck of a lot more about how to do that successfully than any of us do. And we would be wise to listen to his counsel and to not stray away from the truth. And so just as Paul did 2,000 years ago, I hope to repeat and convey to you again uh, through his word. And I hope that we as a church can grow in strength and unity and humility in serving and worshiping the Lord together as we're in this place of, of wandering in the desert until we reach 
the promised land together. And so let's pray, and then we'll dive into God's Word. Father in heaven, how holy, awesome, righteous, and true you are. You are our Lord. You alone are the Lord. And because you are the Lord, we submit to you. And because we confess with our mouth that you are the Lord, we are committed to following you and following your instructions, your precepts, submitting to your will and your counsel. Father, I thank you for those who have gone before us. May we not waste their lives by ignoring the examples we can draw from their life. Father, you are teaching us through those who have gone before us. And so, Father, help us not to live in insanity and repeat the same mistakes. Help us not to be foolish. But God, this morning, teach us and inspire us how to grow and learn from those who have gone before us. And God, we have learned that those who put their trust in you will find success according to your will. And so, God, I just ask that every one of us will humble ourselves and submit ourselves before you, knowing that without you it's impossible to do anything of worth or value, anything good at all. And so, God, be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So if your Bibles are open to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we had just gone through a series where Paul was talking about matters of indifference, should we or shouldn't we eat food, sacrifice the idols, and, and that spun into all sorts of different conversation. Uh, and he's going to stick on a similar theme, but, but now he's going to draw from history, and he's going to talk about what history has taught us through God's people Israel about how we ought to proceed and uh, lessons that we ought to learn from the people who have gone before us. And so here in chapter 10, verse 1, he continues on, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So let's unpack this verse here together, try and see what God is trying to tell us. So first of all, he, he tells them he doesn't want them to be unaware. So he wants to inform them that our fathers were all under the cloud. So what does he mean by our fathers? So the scripture tells us that those who put their hope and trust and faith in Jesus Christ and follow him are those who are born again children of God. Now, do you put your faith, your hope, your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord this morning? Yeah? That means that you are a child of God, and you are, have been adopted into the family of God. And so, John 1.12 says, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Now, the same cannot be said about those who do not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The world will try and tell you that we are all God's children. And according to the scripture, that assertion is false. Only those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ are considered children of God. Galatians 3, 7 through 9 tells us that those who have been adopted as children of God have also been adopted into a family of faith. And so we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And, you know, some people get kind of weird about that relationship, and, and that's okay. I like a little bit of weird. But, you know, some people will walk around and call, hey, Brother Jim, hey, Sister Jill. You know, uh, they, they, they make it weird. But that's okay. There's weird people in every family, right? I mean, you got that weird Uncle Bill sitting up on the hill who acts all weird, but you love him. He's family, right? He's invited to the family picnics, and he does his weird stuff, and then you all talk about it later, but you love him. You're there for him, right? It's the same in a church family. We got some weirdos, and I'm one of them. And God bless you for sticking around through all my weird stuff, right? But part of that is we become the family of God, and not just from those who are living, 
but also from those who have gone before us, because we stand upon the shoulders of giants, of people who are just like you and me, but who God empowered and called to do amazing things for his glory and his purposes. And we get to read about all those things that they've done. So not only the Jews can call the people of Israel who have gone before us our fathers, but we as Gentiles who have been grafted in can also refer to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Those are our fathers as well, all the way back to Abraham. Galatians 3, 7 through 9 says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So we can look at, at Abraham and those who have gone before us as essentially the forefathers of our faith. And so we would do well to understand how they lived and what they did, how they succeeded and how they failed. Because after all, they are there for our example, for us to learn from. They not only carried out redemptive purposes by the things that they've done. Abraham, who was called to the land of promise, he came and he settled and he established. And then from, from that point on, each, each one of his descendants carried out a specific calling in which ultimately led up to Jesus Christ, died on the cross for our sins, in which he then called the disciples to establish the church, to go out to the ends of the earth, to preach the gospel, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And then we have all these people throughout church history, all these martyrs who were fighting for the faith, and all these uh, missionaries who went out to, to foreign third world places and planted churches. We have such a rich history of believers to draw from. And that's why it's absolutely foolish and insane to think we don't need the Old Testament anymore. Well, we have Christ. We're under the new covenant of grace. We're not under the covenant of the law anymore. Therefore, we should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. What a foolish, foolish thought. If you erase that history, if you unhitch yourself from that history, how can you possibly learn from it? And we've, we've seen this happening in real time where people want to tear down the statues of the heroes of our nation who have gone before us, the founders. They want to destroy the statues, destroy the memory. Why? Because they were engaged in, in things that people don't agree with. Uh, sometimes some, some heinous things, some, some bad things. They have a, a blemish on their record. Well, instead of destroying that, shouldn't we learn from that? Shouldn't we learn that, well, God still used flawed people from the beginning even in the founding of America, flawed people who did flawed things to carry out his purposes. The United States of America, the freedoms we enjoy, the liberty that we promote, is not an accident in history. That was ordained by God, and he used imperfect people to do that. And he is using imperfect people right now to continue his purposes. And, you know, sometimes his purposes is to demonstrate his righteousness and his holiness by punishing, by destroying a wicked people. And as we see people becoming even more wicked in this world, we can expect that he will demonstrate his righteousness yet again. But as we look back through history, we should not unhitch ourselves. We should not get rid of history. We should not rip the Old Testament out of our Bible or never go to the Old Testament because there is a rich history to learn from. And this is what Paul is going to talk about. Because he brings up the fact that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, the rock that was Christ. And so Paul leads off with this fact that Israel, the Hebrew people, were a blessed people, that God himself blessed his people. And here's how he blessed them. Well, first of all, it shows that he blessed them through a baptism and through a communion or through a supper, a Lord's Supper. You might think, well, communion is 
for New Testament believers. Well, Paul is pointing back to Old Testament instances where communion, where, ba- where baptism, where people just didn't know it yet. First of all, Israel's baptism, when you think of their history, when you think of their captivity when they were in Egypt and they were slaves to Pharaoh and to his program, and they really had no choice, no option. They had to live according to their slavery in Egypt. But then God, wanting to set his people free, he intervened, and he was very persuasive to Pharaoh through a series of plagues. He convinced Pharaoh to let his people go. If you remember Moses, he came before Pharaoh and demanded, according to God, that he let his people go. Pharaoh refused, and God continued to turn up the heat on Pharaoh until eventually he said, just go, just leave, you're free. And so as they fled towards the Red Sea, suddenly Pharaoh, who had a, had a hardened heart and who was hardened to his own destruction, decided to pursue Israel, and he pursued them all the way to the Red Sea until he had them surrounded and cornered, and there's nowhere Israel could go. But then God intervened again, and through a pillar of fire, a pillar of smoke, he prohibited Pharaoh and his army from being able to reach the Israelites. And then he asked through Moses that Israel would have faith to follow him. And so through their faith, he opened up the Red Sea, providing a way for Israel to go down below the water level on complete dry ground and walked to the other side where they found freedom. And Pharaoh, stubborn, hardened of heart, continued after them through the sea, under the sea level, on dry ground, until God closed the waters on top of them, destroying Pharaoh, destroying the army. And there Israel stood, on the other side of the Red Sea, a free people, completely free, no no fear of the Egyptians pursuing them any longer because their leader was just killed by God. Their army was just killed by God. And so how how do we know that they knew that they were free? They started to sing songs of rejoicing. Moses' sister, Miriam, she picked up a tambourine and which I, I have to admit, it's not the devil's instrument, uh, although it is the devil's instrument in the wrong hands. I will make that point. But she picked up the tambourine and she started leading a procession of praise. And God's people were singing praise because they were free. And so you see that Israel experienced a baptism. They were enslaved. And then God, through going through the water, baptized them into freedom. They're no longer slaves to Egypt, but they were free to be the people of God. And of course, you see the parallel. We experienced uh, witnessing a baptism here recently. You know, as people, every one of us, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And every one of us before Christ are slaves to our sin, just like Israel were slaves to Egypt. And unless God comes in and intervenes and changes our hearts, then we will remain slaves to our sin. But when God comes in and he calls you unto salvation and you respond in faith, then there you are baptized by the Holy Spirit for salvation. And a demonstration of this is through the baptism of water. That is your confession of faith. And that is your going down into the Red Sea on dry land, being completely changed and transformed, and coming out on the other side free from the slavery of sin. And that's the image of baptism, going down into the water, coming back out completely changed and free from sin. So there the parallel remains, Israel's baptism and our baptism. But then we also see that Israel had communion as well. Their baptism through the Red Sea was not the end of the story. You know, they they could have just, it would be the perfect ending of a movie. You have 
Miriam with the tambourine, everybody rejoicing, we're free, and then roll credits, it's done. But that wasn't the end of the story. Israel was called to occupy and return to the promised land. And how did that go? Well, I mean, if you look at a map, you see that they came over the, the Red Sea, and really all they would have had to have done is travel north up to the Gaza Strip, bam, bam, you're there. You're in Israel. And what happened? Well, they forgot about the blessings of God. And they started to turn to their flesh and to their idols. And they started to worship other gods. And they forgot about God's blessings. And so therefore, God allowed them to wander in the desert, to and fro, back and forth, up and down, just like a, a messed up, unraveled ball of, of yarn. They were lost in the desert. They were wandering in the wilderness. But God provided for them, despite the fact of, of their lack of faith. God provided for them manna, bread from heaven. He provided for them quail at one point. God also provided for them water. And not just in a traditional way, but rather he commanded Moses to strike the rock. And after striking and cracking the rock open, water poured forth like a fountain and the people received water. And so in their communion together, God provided them communion of food. And not just food for temporal sustenance, but also spiritual food. They didn't realize it at the time, but this was spiritual food as well. And it had a deeper meaning because of the miraculous nature in which it was presented. And so in, in this way, we see that they were baptized through the Red Sea, and they experienced communion as they wandered in the desert. But I love the point, and, and this can be a, an inter interesting point when we look at Paul say, the spiritual rock that followed them was Christ. What does that mean? Well, when we look at, there's two significant points in this storyline where the rock is struck twice. There, two different rocks are struck twice and provide water for Israel's people. First of all, we see that there was a splitting of the rock, the water at Horeb, which marked the beginning of their wilderness wandering. And then another rock would be split for water at Meribah to mark the end of their desert wandering just before they would cross over into the promised land. And so Paul asserts here that they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And then he declares that rock was Christ. And when we look at the significance of this, it has to do with Christ. Christ was the rock which was struck on the cross at Calvary to provide salvation for the sins of his people. When we look at the second rock, there's a deeper significance here because God commanded Moses to speak to the rock, to speak to the rock and it will provide water. Well, Moses was fed up with his people at this point. I mean, this is after their 40 years of wandering. They're grumbling, they're backbiting, they're pushing back, they're not having faith, they're trying to follow other gods, they're sinning, and he's just fed up with his people. So, and, and it's causing him to not follow God as well. So instead of speaking to the rock, he strikes the rock again. And that one single action, striking the rock rather than speaking to the rock, prohibited Moses from walking over the Jordan and into the promised land himself. He was allowed to see it from a distance. And as he was there, just almost across the finish line, then that's where he died. And God did not allow him to pass over into the promised land. But yet Moses still is revered. But what was the point of, of all of that? God is trying to tell us a story through the story of the Hebrew people and their exodus from Egypt. And he's trying to tell the story of Christ. And he's trying to tell the story of our baptism and of our communion. And so when Moses 
interfered with that storyline by not doing what God told him to do, then God disqualified him from fulfilling that ministry. But yet, we see that the story is still told only through, the, through his disobedience. And he was punished. He, it could have been a different way. He could have spoke, and it could have happened differently. But the whole point of this is that we are able to come to the Father for fulfillment, for sustenance, for, for water, flowing water through him because he was struck on a tree. And as believers, through the Holy Spirit, which the water tends to symbolize the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, all we have to do is speak. No longer sacrifices need to be made. No longer the rock needs to be struck, but rather we can speak to God and ask Him in prayer for water, for living water, and He gives it so freely. Consider Christ when He was ministering to the woman at the well, John 4, 10 through 15. He, sa- he tells her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us his well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. This is what Paul is referring to when he talks about Christ being the rock that followed them. They didn't know it yet. They saw it from a a physical standpoint, but God was painting the picture of, of his grand story of Christ. So the water was a foreshadowing of the Holy Spirit that the Lord promised to all who would believe. And so one would think that a generation who saw all these things would never stray from God, would never again ever sin. I mean, have you ever thought about this? If, if only God would show me his glory and his miracles, then I would be motivated to never sin again. Well, that's just as false as when your kid comes to you and says, if you give me this for Christmas, I'll never ask for anything again. I used to say that to my parents, and I found out that was absolutely false, and it's the same with God. God can give us all the miracles and show us all the glory that we ever desire. And for us, we will still only want more. It will never be good enough. We will always forget what he has done for us. I mean, salvation alone should be enough for us. Being born again should be enough to propel us to live a life of absolute obedience and righteousness. But how many of us continue to sin and fail and sin? All of us. The Apostle John says, if you say that you're without sin, you're a liar, and you make him out to be a liar as well. All of us, we sin, but the difference is conviction of sin as a believer. Repentance from sin. And we do our very best to follow him. Why? Because we're not slaves to sin anymore. No, no, no. We've gone through the Red Sea with him, and we are free. But just like Israel, we will continue to stumble and fall until we make it to the promised land one day. So when we look at Israel's extraordinary story, it's actually a a macrocosm of our own lives or our own redemptive story. And then he continues on. Let's look at verses 5 through 11. He continues, despite all these blessings, salvation, baptism, communion, promised land, despite all that stuff. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. 
We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. So most of them were overthrown in the desert. And if you just remember uh, the accounts of Israel in the desert, you remember when they would sin against God, he would open up the earth and swallow some of them. He would send out snakes from the wilderness to, to bite them and poison them so that they would die unless they looked to the staff. Uh, so if you look at these things, that's what he's referring to when they were overthrown. And the Greek word for this ultimately means scattered and killed. So overthrown means scattered and killed. And instead of overcoming their temptation to sin against God or wander from God, they themselves were overcome by their temptation to sin. And they sinned and they paid the price. Now, a lot of people wonder, well, does paying the price and not make it to the promised land mean that they were not saved? Well, many of them were saved. They just stumbled back into sin. And so, therefore, God allowed them to continue to their own demise, where God ultimately punished them. Some of them, I assume, had unbelief, uh, perhaps, but probably a majority of them who were grumbling, who were falling into idolatry, sexual immorality, uh, many of them were indeed believers, but yet they faced real consequences for their sin. The first thing he points up is idolatry. So while they were wandering in the desert, they were tempted to worship idols, and many of them gave in to it. Uh, Exodus 32, 1 through 8 says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, and the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. How foolish is that? And this is coming from Aaron. I can imagine Moses like, come on, man. You're supposed to be the guy upholding the truth, but here you're, you're doing this on their behalf. So when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And that's where that reference comes from in the text we're looking at. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted them themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. So even in the absence of Moses, their, their spiritual guide and leader, even when he was up there just for a few days, they suddenly just forgot. And they, and they suddenly started to follow their gods, and they manipulated Aaron into providing for them false gods. And so they were punished for that. The next thing he references is their sexual immorality. Uh, Numbers 25, 1 through 9. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to, be, to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of, you kill those, uh, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses, in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of the meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear. That's what this is for. And he took a spear. <clears throat> Let's see. Took a spear in his hand and he went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man and the woman, through their belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24 
thousands. So there you see the reference that, that uh, Paul is making. So here we have two historical accounts of Israel wandering in the desert and them turning away from God and disaster or bad things happening to them. Okay? And you'd think that the people of God would learn from this, but they don't. They continue to test God's patience with their sin. And that's the next point, is that they were testing God's patience. Numbers 21, 4 through 9. It says, From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people in Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpent from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it up on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it up on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And do you know what that bronze serpent on the pole is meant to represent? It's meant to represent Christ. This is a foreshadowing of Christ himself. The, the, the serpents and their poisonous bite represents the sting of death, the sentence of death. But yet all who look upon Christ, who was lifted up, who was broken for our sake, will be healed of their poison, will be spared from death. And of course, I'm speaking from a spiritual standpoint, that we are spiritually dead, that we are poisoned and we are dying until we look upon Christ and confess and believe in him for salvation. Again, we see God using the old covenant and Israel and their experience to foreshadow his ultimate plan of salvation. We must never throw away these Old Testament stories. They are rich in truth and experiences that we can learn from. And it's the same story over and over again. Follow God, do what he says, live by faith, and it will go well with you. And even if times are hard, it will still be well with you because you will have him with you, providing living water along the way, even if it's difficult. And if you stray from that, if you turn from him and you turn away, it will not go well with you. You will be disqualified from being a part of his program. And you may even die prematurely if it's possible. But then he turns to the last point that he makes, pointing back to history, grumbling. Any of you grumble that you're willing to admit? You complain and you grumble about the way things are. They're, they're not going the way that you would like them to go. And, and I often like to think of, uh, when I, whenever I hear the word grumbling, I think of this audible, grumble, 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 right? If any of you are, are old school video gamers, you remember the original Zelda, right? There was a, a part in there where there was this dog who was guarding a door that you couldn't go, go through unless you went and you bought this big chunk of meat, and then you threw it in front of him. But I, I remember vividly that if you went up to this dog without the meat and you tried to pass him, all of a sudden text would come up that said, grumble, grumble, grumble. And so every time I read about the grumbling of Israel, I just remember this dog, and I remember grumble, 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 grumble. And so um, hopefully I can see that in myself too when I start to grumble, that I'm just like this dog. But Israel's people, uh, or God's people, Israel, they grumbled against God, they grumbled against Moses, against Aaron, everybody. Numbers 14, 26 through 32. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumbled against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and all of your number, listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of 
Zephanue, and Joshua the son of Nun. But your little ones who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. So God, the destroyer, he destroyed these people who continually grumbled against God. Even Moses. Because Moses, even though the people were grumbling against him, he was grumbling to God about the people. But yet God called him for that very, very purpose, to take a grumbling people, to, to free them from Egypt, to lead them through the desert and into the promised land. That was his calling. That was his lot. And he grumbled against that calling. Now, how many of you know what you're called to do? And how many of you find it difficult to carry out what God is calling you to do? And how many of you grumble against God for that very calling? God, why have you called me to do this? This is hard. This is difficult. It's, it's not as fun as I would like, and it's not easy. We grumble against God, and that's not good. So just as God blessed the Hebrew people, freeing them from captivity, baptizing them through the sea, providing them with food and spiritual food through communion, through the desert, and water from the split rock, which he also blessed the believers at Corinthians who believe and believers who believe today. He gives us that spiritual drink. But despite those incredible blessings, they still turned away from him. They made idols and they worshipped idols. They practiced sexual immorality. They complained and they grumbled and they tested the patience of God. And when we look at our own lives, how many of us, despite how many blessings God has done for us, turn to our old ways, are, are attracted to our old ways, are tempted by our old ways, and how many of us give in to those temptations? Despite the fact that we have all these examples of how it does not go well for those who give in to their temptations, especially continually. And so Paul, he closes this section, and we'll close the sermon with this section, verses 12 through 14. He wants to offer them some practical things besides just knowledge of history. Here are some practical ways, ways that we have learned from history that we as believers can overcome the temptations that face us and we can continue on in faithfulness to God. So he says, verse 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So here's four takeaways that we can take home with us today besides just an understanding of history through Israel. The first thing that he brings up is don't get cocky. If the Corinthians believe that they can mess around with sinful activity, with impunity, and without any kind of repercussion because we're under grace now. Jesus has saved us. We, the perseverance of the saints. We have heaven. We are God's people. If they thought at all in that kind of arrogant way that they could do whatever they want without repercussion, they were wrong. Just because we're under the new covenant of grace does not mean you don't reap what you sow. If you are living in sin, you will reap sin and what sin gives us, which is destruction, which is chaos which is ultimately death. And sometimes there are sins that disqualify you from continuing in ministry, continuing in doing the work of the Lord. God sees you as somebody who is not productive or profitable in his program any longer. And therefore, he will give you up to your sin. And so this was the whole point of Paul outlining Israel's blunders because they were in a privileged position. They were God's people. He had redeemed them and saved them, but yet they forgot him, and they sinned against him. They got cocky. They got arrogant, and they thought, well, we're God's people. Nothing's going to happen to us. But they did that over and over again. So don't overthink that you are righteous or immune 
from punishment, that you can get away with sinning against God. And even what you might think is a small sin can sometimes have big repercussions in redemptive history. Do you think Moses thought, well, I'm just going to strike this rock instead of speaking to it because it worked before? Do you think he thought that it was going to end up with the result of him not getting to go to the promised land? He probably thought it's just a small thing. It's just, just a rock. Well, what we consider to be a small thing is not always small to God. Any sin against God is big because we are sitting against a God who is perfectly holy and righteous, and he has a plan, and he will make sure that that plan is carried out. And if you are defiant against his plan and against his call for your life, then ultimately God will brush you aside, bring in somebody else who will do it. And so don't ever get arrogant or cocky in your faith. Number two, understand that temptation is common to us all. And I, I, I like to imagine that sometimes as believers, we tend to think that, well, my, my vice, my temptation is greater than the next guy's. And you don't understand. I mean, if you look at my past, my history, yeah, th- this temptation I have is stronger than any temptation you could ever possibly have. So you don't understand. When I give in to this temptation, it's because it's greater than anything you've ever had. Well, the Word of God here, according to Paul, says that that is absolutely not true. If you think that your temptations are unique and harder to resist than the next guy, then you are wrong. And maybe you think because I'm a pastor that I'm never, ever tempted in any way. I am absolutely tempted in every way. You you bring up a sin, you, you talk about greed, there's temptation for greed, pride, arrogance, lust, all those things. Testing God, grumbling. You think I never am tempted to grumble against God for this calling that he's given me? Think again. I am tempted just as you are tempted. So don't ever think that you are so righteous and immune and and free from the possibility of being tempted. Even tempted to the point where, where you are just on the edge of caving in. All of us experience the same thing. The best person among us is tempted just like us. We look at Christ. Christ was tempted to sin. He was tempted by Satan himself. He was fasting in the desert, and Satan tempted him with turning this rock into bread. None of us could have survived that temptation. He was tempted with, well, why don't you, why don't you, uh, you know, get up on this, on this temple and throw yourself off and your angels will come and they will, they will rescue you. Or do you see all this stuff here? I can make you the Lord of the entire earth. Give you everything on the earth. It's all yours. Everything is at your disposal. You, every single one of us would have failed that temptation. Christ himself was tempted in those ways. And how did he respond? It is written. Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And that's how we battle our temptation, by the word of God. And you cannot battle temptation if you don't know the word of God. And you might think, well, I have a horrible memory. I don't like to read, yada, yada, yada. Excuses, excuses, excuses. Read the word of God. Study it. Listen to it. The promise of the Holy Spirit that is within you, within every believer, promises to counsel you in the Word of God and to help come to your memory the Word of God in the moments that you need it. And that's another way that God is with you. Just like the water was provided for Israel, the Holy Spirit will provide you with His words at the right time. When you're faced with temptation, when the the time seems dark and difficult, He will provide you with that nourishment and that water and that bread that you need to make it through. So temptation comes to us all, but God provides for all who come to him. Number three, know that God is faithful to help us endure. He protects us from from sin being irresistible to us. So in other words, no sin is irresistible if you're a believer. So you can resist your sin. There's nothing as a believer, no sin can take you captive again. With God's help, 
He can help you resist all sin. It doesn't matter if there's a chemical dependency. It doesn't matter if it's a deep attraction. God can deliver you from that and help you resist. But he also, and he does this by providing us with a way out. Now, if you look back, you see the green exit signs. I like to think of this. In every scenario where you are tempted, God will provide you a green flashing exit sign. And the more you grow in maturity and in, in your faith, you'll be able to see that. It's kind of like the matrix. You know, they look at the words coming down and they say, I, don't, I have no idea what that says. Well, you know, after a while, you get, to, you get to understand what that says. See right there? There's a person walking down the street. Same way with your spiritual life. You will start to see with your spirit the exit that God is providing for you. And in every tempting moment, there is an exit that God is providing for you. You just have to have the faith to find it and the desire to find it. If you put yourself into a tempting situation and you are hoping that maybe a situation arises where you can sin, if you are testing God in this way, then it's going to be really hard to find that exit when you need it. In fact, you're not even going to be looking for it. But if you come into every situation as a faithful person committed to living righteously for him, those exit signs will be shining bright and you will know how to get the heck out of there. Because the final point, the fourth point, in how do we not become over, overcome by temptation and to repeat the history of Israel and many believers throughout history is that when you recognize that you are in a situation where you could be compromised, where the temptation is there and you have a desire to sin, when you recognize that, you flee. You don't just walk to the exit, you run to the exit and you run out. Just as if we're in this building and it suddenly catches fire, don't just kind of, I'm going to walk over there. Oh, first I need to go get something real quick. Huh? No, well, you know, hopefully we're not going to be running over each other. But no, you intentionally and with great urgency move towards the exit. You flee, you run. You don't play around with sin. You don't poke it with a stick. You don't have fun with your sin. You don't tempt, put yourself in a tempting situation. If you're in a compromised situation, you look for that exit and you flee to that exit. And that's how we learn not to be overcome by temptation, not to repeat the history that we have seen so many believers fail in the past. And so this is not about an earned righteousness. This is not about you earning any extra favor. This is about you living faithfully for the Lord. Because as a pastor, as a fellow believer, as a brother in Christ, I want to see it go well with you and see it go well with your family. And I want to see it go well with this body of believers, that we are all committed people of God who are doing the will of God because amazing things can happen. And God has already done amazing things for us. So let's not get to the point where we, we're arrogant and we're thinking, we're like, clearly God is with us. Look at all these people who are coming to Christ. Look at how God is filling up this place with, with great people and, and, and great musicians and, and everything's so great. God is with us. And then suddenly we forget. We forget about why he's with us. He's with us so that we can do his work and so that more people can come to a saving faith in him. If we stray from righteousness, if we start giving in to temptation and sinning, then we are going to disqualify ourselves from ministry. Some of us might even perish before our time. And I would not want to see that happen. Does anybody here want to see that happen? Or do you want to do great things for the Lord? I think we can do great things for the Lord, but it requires us to keep our eyes fixed on Him and to follow Him through it all. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Help us to be obedient to your word. You are the Lord. I thank you, God, for this place and these people, this time we get to spend together. I pray that through your word we would be drawn closer together, drawn closer to you, that we would learn from those who have gone before us, from our forefathers in the faith, that we would learn from people in our lives their successes, their failures, that we would not forget you and forget what it means to live for you. God, we thank you for the many blessings you've given us in this place. 
And we just ask that, God, as we continue to faithfully follow, that those blessings would increase and grow so that we could do more for your, your name's sake. We love you, God. We're thankful for this day. In Jesus' name, amen.